Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. As we record on the eve of Israel's fifth elections, the polls, statistics, every aspect of the horse race of this campaign and the possible outcomes has been examined, discussed, turned upside down and inside out. But what has really happened in these elections beyond the numbers? The big story of this election campaign is undoubtedly the rise of the extreme right-wing, anti-Arab, and religious, socially conservative forces that have come together to form what is called the Religious Zionism Party. Who are they exactly? How did they grow to be so powerful? What does their rise mean, and what will it mean if they come to power? And how do they fit into global trends? Here to help us sort out all of those questions is Professor Jonathan Reinhold, the chair of the Department of Political Studies at Bar-Ilan University. Professor Reinhold, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Thank you, Alison. Nice to be here. Can we start with the basics? Tell us about the elements of the Religious Zionism Party, who their leaders are, what their roots are in Israeli political history, and how it is that they came together. There are, I would say, two and a half roots of the Religious Zionist Party. The first is the leader Itamar Ben-Gvir. And Itamar Ben-Gvir was a follower of Meir Kahana. Meir Kahana founded the Jewish Defense League in the United States and then immigrated to Israel and founded the openly racist Kach Party, which called for the expulsion and denial of all civic rights of uh, Arabs, both citizens of the state of Israel and those in the West Bank and Gaza. The Kaf party was banned in the mid-1980s when a law was passed saying that any party that doesn't accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state can be banned. Now, historically, this has happened mainly with Kaf, and, and when it's challenged on Arab parties, it, it doesn't usually succeed. So that's one part of it. That's him. And he is uh, represents that element of uh, the Israeli radical right. The difference is that he is not from an Anglo background. The early Kahanists, their leadership was mainly Anglo, though their followers were mainly what we call Mizrahi, the families whose parents or themselves came from Arab countries or from North Africa. And indeed, Ben Gvir is himself from a family that hails from Iraq. That's called the Otsma Yehudit faction. The second faction, which is religious Zionism, is Betzalel Smotrich. And Betzalel Smotrich is, comes out of the classic religious Zionist movement in Israel. So what you had with the foundation of the state was a religious Zionist party, Mavdal, that was moderate and that was mainly interested in domestic politics. After 1967, Religious Zionists became primarily the drivers of the settler movement and of settling the West Bank and of an approach to religious Zionism which put Messianism far more in the centre than had been the case previously. And in that camp, Smotrich himself was considered to be on the far right edge, right? Yes. So what happened was a generation of children were educated by people with that outlook. And so you had the old style religious Zionists who work in law offices, who serve in the army and have their right wing views. Predominantly younger generation 
that have a much more hostile approach to Western society in general and a less unequivocal support for the state of Israel as the full legitimate representative of the Jewish people, a more an approach which says if the government of the state of Israel supports us well and nice, but if not, then it's okay if we break the law. And Smotrich comes out of that side of things, which is much more skeptical of Western influence and is much more radical in its approach to pushing settlements and confronting the state of Israel when the state of Israel doesn't hold that view. And then there's also the religious and socially conservative aspect of Smotrich, in which he was controversial early in his career for being openly hostile to LGBTQ issues. Yes, and that's the half. The half is Noam, which, although it's not formally associated with Smotrich, it, it is a more concentrated and focused approach to the issues of you know what we call sometimes social issues, which we what we really mean is sexuality. So it's to do with yes, very anti-gay, very anti-LGBT, very aggressively so and nastily, not just an opinion and a, and a political agenda. And that's also very much a part of this anti-liberal, anti-Western view, which is contrary to the original religious Zionism was much more about blending modernity and religion. So those are the two and a half elements that make up the core of uh, what today is called the religious Zionist party. And both Ben Gvir and Smotrich, what they have in common is that both of them to greater or lesser extents have polished, sanded down some of their more, you know, spiky, very transgressive, very controversial views in order to break into the mainstream of politics. But in both cases, everyone's really skeptical as to whether these were, you know, tactical changes or whether at all they've moderated, in fact. I think the word moderated is the wrong word. The word pragmatic is probably the right word. And by pragmatic as opposed to moderate, I mean, they haven't actually changed their objectives. Their objectives are no more moderate than they were before. But they have become more willing to make tactical compromises in order to gain more political power. So instead of just being expressive of extremism, they now will are willing to make verbally tactical concessions. So they won't talk openly in about expelling Arabs or they'll backpedal that or they, they won't focus on the anti-homosexual agenda. They will sort of soften that because what they're trying, the very name religious Zionism, yeah, as opposed to Otsma Yudit, which is Jewish power, right? right? Which is, <laughs> that tells you a lot is to try and attract people who like that brand, yeah? So mm-hmm. the brand of religious Zionism is a very broad church, right? It's very, you know, you can be very moderate and be in it and all the So by blurring that, and also Ben Fear's image is more, he softened his image of a sort of traditional Sephardi, Mizrahi boy, less of the radical, so that there's more that people who are, softer right but religious can identify with his tribe he is like the tribal representative of all religious zionism not just the extreme version that him and smotrich actually promote 
Do we account for their transformation, you know, over the past years, decades, you've been watching Israeli politics for a long time, from fringe figures and fringe phenomenons to entering the mainstream, to their transformation in image, to a change in Israeli political views? Or do we pin all of the credit slash blame on their uh, surge in uh, power and popularity to uh, the actions of uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the current opposition leader? So I think that Netanyahu, this all, the, the great, the sharp rise in their support, getting into the Knesset, if in the last election, without Netanyahu's active and intensive mediation to bring Smotrich and Ben Gvir together, Benveer would not have crossed the electoral threshold of 3.25%. That happened in which election? I've lost track. <laughs> 2021, I think. That was the third election, right? Or the fourth? I've also lost track. <laughs> We've come to this. <laughs> yeah, the previous one, the one that we had a year and a bit ago. Okay, so the fourth. The fourth election, yeah. In other words, Netanyahu, in order to save his own skin because of his court case, was prepared to to have a government with an Arab Islamist party headed by Abbas or the most radical right, yeah, which is Benkvir, which shows you it was all about him, right? It doesn't matter what their views are. It was getting to 61 that counted. And so that enabled them to enter the Knesset. Now, once they've entered the Knesset, they get a level of legitimacy and credibility, like I'm not throwing my vote in the bin, right, that they didn't have before. The second way in which Netanyahu is critical to their rise is because in order to stop him being prime minister, because of the feeling that many people, even on the moderate right, had that his corruption trials really mean that he should not be prime minister. And that's very different from the sort of Trumpists. There, there is a significant group of right-leaning people who really think the corruption thing around Netanyahu, he should move away, he should step aside. So when Bayat UD, when the Jewish Home Party led by Naftali Bennett basically entered a centre-left government, as, albeit as prime minister, their credibility with their right-wing base collapsed. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean their right-wing base didn't want them to do if they'd been in the same position, they wouldn't have done the same thing. But But they don't want to choose between being right-wing and having to have a prime minister who's not under investigation. They want to have both. And that meant that coming to this election, they didn't have anyone to vote for. They don't have anyone to vote for. In other words, they want to vote for a religious right-wing Zionist party. Yes? They want to vote for a party that doesn't, unlike Smotrich and Bengvir, doesn't start fights with the Israeli army. They prefer not to have any of that. But they don't want to be with uh, the centre, with Gantz, even though there are right-wing figures and religious figures on that list, because it's tribal, it's not their tribe, and there's a great feeling of uncomfortableness. So that means that between Netanyahu's Likud and religious Zionism, there is nothing credible, because what's left of UD doesn't look like it's going to cross the threshold. So some of those voters are voting for that anyway, some of them won't vote. Some of them will go to Netanyahu. Some of them will go to Gantz. But the bulk of them seem to be indicating 
that they're going to religious Zionism. So if we look at Yamina in the last election, in the fourth election, got seven, and religious Zionism got six. Together, that's 13. That's more or less what they're polling on now, a little bit more, and mm -hmm. we can it's, look at why they might be polling a little bit more than that. But that seems to me the main thing that's going on. If you look on Wednesday after the election at how people in Efrat are kind of for a settlement, one of the much more moderate settlements, right. where they voted for Naftali Bennett last time, or near Barilan, there's a district called Givat Shmuel, where there's a lot of religious Zionists. If you look how they're going to vote, that will tell you where Bennett's voters went. And just judging by being on the streets of uh, Givat Shaul, I think that um, Bengvi is going to do well there. Some of this is due to some very clever campaigning by Bengvi. He's uh, saying that he's going to be trying to be internal security minister, basically police minister, if uh, Netanyahu wins the election and he gets a powerful position. I'm wondering if we can draw a causal line to the rise of his appeal and popularity and, you know, very anti-Arab rhetoric, including Israeli citizens, including Arab citizens of Israel, to the events of May 2021, to the riots in which thousands of Arab Israeli citizens were involved in violent demonstrations in cities across Israel. There was arson, there was looting, you know, the, a feeling of uh, sort of lawlessness, Jewish property. Do you think maybe that has played a part in the rise of Ben Gvir? I think there's an irony here in that Netanyahu, prior to his court case, was extremely good restraining the far right and, and was quite happy to do it. But it was Ben Gvir who was stirring up trouble in uh, East Jerusalem, in the Arab part of East Jerusalem, causing tensions, which was then exploited by extremists on the Palestinian side to start the riots, which started the war that you're referring to and brought Israeli Arabs into the conflict because it was around a religious symbol in Jerusalem. Irony is that here, Netanyahu didn't want to restrain Ben Gvir because he needed him a lot more right. because of his court case. So, so even that is related to Netanyahu. I don't think that that is a major reason for the big jump. I don't think his security credentials are what's driving people to vote for him. But those... There are many credentials. There's a lot of rhetoric and, you know, talk, but there's not a lot of credentials there. Um, um, the army didn't want them, right? Unless exactly. you consider getting arrested credentials for being police minister. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it wouldn't be the first time. But I think that, you know, making sort of lots of loud noises on that, I don't think it registers particularly strongly. I mean, I think the people who already thought that may have moved a little bit harder in that direction. You know, it's not been a major feature of the campaign. I don't think that that's the attraction. Let's look a little bit at the away from the personalities and into the policy positions. When In his youth, Ben Gvir used to advocate for the expulsion of all Arab Israelis, and he says he's toned down that position over the years. But if we look at some of the policies in their platform that's written down or verbally expressed, they include encouraging Arab citizens of Israel to emigrate, annexing the West Bank without affording Palestinians the right to vote or other civil rights, reforming the legal system, uh, crimping the high court's ability to strike down legislation and giving the government the ability to pass 
pack the bench with ideological uh, partners. In recent days, Ben Gvir has said explicitly that if in power, he will do what he can to cancel Benjamin Netanyahu's criminal trial by pushing for the passage of what they call a, a French law of, uh, of forbidding a sitting leader to be prosecuted for crimes. Of all of this uh, panoply of uh, positions, what do you view as the most dangerous element? Well, there's certainly a lot to choose from. <laughs> I think I would like to say that in the short to medium term, the biggest threat to democracy is the uh, so-called reforms to the to the legal framework, and because policy is easily reversed, but when you change institutions, they become sticky. You get people who have vested interest in it, and that becomes very difficult to change. What he wants to do with the legal system is to undermine the independence of the judiciary, which will not only increase the politicization of law, but it will undermine, it will begin to erode the rule of law in Israel, create plenty of opportunities for financial and political corruption and manipulation. And it will take away one of the kind of big blocks that protects Israeli democracy. So I think that for me, that is the most immediate and serious threat. Because when that falls, all the other things that you mention become much more possible. And that's why Netanyahu's court case is a bit of a, it's not really just about him. So when we talk about the reform of the legal system, you know, Gidon Saar wanted to reform the legal system. But the difference is that he has a conservative view of the legal system, which is that judges should play less of a role and parliament more of a role. But he doesn't want to get rid of the independence of the judiciary. It's a legitimate debate within democratic theory about how much power the legislature and the judiciary should have. And he has a conservative view. The difference is that at the end of the day, he's a Democrat with a small d, and Ben Veren is not, um, and will use this to undermine things. And, and Netanyahu, who you would have associated previously with, with a sort of Saar-like position, is now so obsessed with his personal situation that he's prepared to sanction anything, including you know, the serious erosion of, of democratic norms. Despite the fact that uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich are clearly in the pro Netanyahu camp, do you feel like Netanyahu, in a sense, feels like he's created kind of a Frankenstein in his shotgun wedding of Smotrich and uh, and Ben Gvir into this one big powerful party? Because in these closing days of the campaign, Likud is in a head-to-head battle with religious Zionism for seats, for support, with Netanyahu running some kind of a gewalt campaign of, you know, I need to get enough seats in order to be the one who puts together the government. Don't vote for religious Zionism. Vote for me. Vote for Likud. Do you think he regrets any of his uh, behavior in terms of uh, empowering uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich? From Netanyahu's point of view, the ideal situation is Ben Gvir gets 3.26% of the vote, right? Just enough to get him over the threshold and that they could get the rest. Right. But you can't have that. And yes, he's created a monster, if you like, that eats into the Likud. But ultimately, he's prepared to pay that price because it's the block and 61 that counts, not the Likud. 
in Netanyahu's main concern is not how many seats the league could get. It's to make sure that there are 61 MKs who support getting him out of his legal difficulties. He knows he's created a monster, but it's worth it if he can stay where he is. Moving beyond our borders for a minute, what do you make of the doom and gloom scenarios in which uh, Netanyahu government, should he triumph in the elections, in which religious Zionism holds important portfolios will make Israel much more of a political outcast in Western circles. We see warnings from politicians in the United States, particularly the Democratic Party. We see the European Students Union uh, warning against it, a whole uh, range of Jewish organizations in Europe and uh, North America. Do you foresee as big a looming disaster in that scenario as some are making it out to be? Well, I think the first thing to say is that Netanyahu will at least turn to Gantz if he gets enough votes and say, it's up to you to save Israel from Ben Gvir. For those who aren't uh, necessarily in the day-to-day uh, headlines, Gantz's party is the National Unity Party. And it is, I would say, I guess we describe it as a centrist party, right? To Netanyahu's yes. left, but not perceived as being as far left or in particularly as uh, hostile to some of the religious issues as uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, right? Yeah. And I don't think Gantz would say yes, but but I think he will do that so he can say, you see, I tried. I didn't want it. Mm -hmm. Right. All the left and center left parties will have in Europe and in the West will have a real problem with such a government. But then again, in Central and Eastern Europe and in the Republican Party, there are plenty of populist parties who will have no real problem with it. You know, they won't look too closely at the differences. They'll see the similarities and they'll think that, you know, the more that this outlook succeeds in one place, the more legitimate it becomes in every other place. And so, yes, it will do serious damage to the those on the center left that support Israel. And there are quite a few of them, despite how it's often presented. It will undermine their ability to present a case for supporting Israel. But often with extremist groups, they come in, the first thing they do is, is try and appear very moderate and not try and push anything immediately to kind of put everyone to sleep. And then later when they build up their power, then they, then they push through. So, you know, they might just make a lot of noise and manage to alienate everyone very quickly. But I suspect given what we're seeing with their greater pragmatism, that that wouldn't be the case and that they would, you know, try and see, look, you see, we're not so bad. We can be pragmatic. Da, 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 da. And then when the opportunities present themselves, then it's a bit like um, for those of you who know Star Wars, you know, the emperor gets mm -hmm. into the, you know, the democratic Senate 20 years before he shuts it down and turns it into an empire. These things take a lot of time extremists hide behind all sorts of uh, rhetoric and stuff and, and but they will when they get their opportunities they will take them so you refer to some of these global trends nationalism you know um these populist parties on the far right uh, many of whom have xenophobic or even racist tendencies you know we can list them all right uh, from putin to the recent victory of the far right in italy the close call with uh, marine le pen uh, where she almost uh, took the uh, the recent french elections obviously we've had for a long time uh, orban in uh, in hungary in the us trump christian nationalism 
Um, if we had recorded this yesterday, I might have mentioned Bolsonaro in Brazil, though it looks like, you know, he was now uh, edged out and is no longer in power. So my question to you is, do you see religious Zionism, this trend towards the far right in Israel as some sort of Jewish Middle East version of what's going on globally? Or is it apples and oranges and something completely different? I think the rest of the world's become like Israel. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? Israel's always had identity politics. As the former president of Israel put it, we're, we're a country of tribes. Increasingly, that's what Western politics looks like, identity politics. So in some ways, Israel got there first. And it's not a coincidence because Israel is a country of immigrants. And the other country, which has had identity politics for a long time, though not in the same way as it has it now, is the United States. There's always been an Italian-American vote, an Irish-American vote, a Jewish-American vote, and, and now increasingly a Hispanic-American vote. So the, the immigration means has a certain impact about unease about the connection between who is part of us and who is not. And that now the rest of the world is experiencing what, what Israel, Israeli politics has, has, has always been about, and, and most certainly since the 1970s. That, in some ways, is, is similar. But in other ways, there are big differences. So the rest of the world's identity politics comes out of the end of the Cold War and globalization. Um, much more movement of people across borders, immigration, migration, and much more movement of capital across borders. So your job that you used to have in Pittsburgh is now in Shanghai or in Mexico City. So what you have is a group of people who identify a more cosmopolitan approach with a threat to them, both in terms of their economic interests and in terms of their identity. And identity has political value, not only expressively, but identity means, you know, you owe, as of right, people of a similar identity certain things. So if you're a British citizen or an American citizen, you owe your tax dollars to pay for the social security of your fellow citizens, and you don't owe it to people who are not your citizens. So when the state becomes smaller, and when more resources go abroad, and when more resources go to immigrants, you lose out. And you're affected, uh, both in terms of your dignity, your identity is now worth less, right? The, the people talk about morality in universal terms, not in communal terms. We need to look after those who are from our country, fought with us in the Second World War and all that sort of stuff. That's really the background for the far right in Europe and in America, the Rust Belt in America and all of that stuff. And left-wing parties, which previously looked, you know, their job was to look after the working class. Mm -hmm. The working class has shrunk in order to win. Left-wing parties needed to be more middle class. When they did that, they alienated the ones who are the losers from all this openness. Now, that isn't really something that makes much sense in Israel. And there's two reasons for that. One is because Israeli society remains far more communitarian. In other words, Israelis are far more willing to pay and feel a much greater responsibility to pay for the welfare of the weak in their society. You, all the polling shows it. I mean, they, 
you know, on the one hand, you think they must be libertarian because they're so critical of the way the state functions. But then you ask them, but do we still have to pay for this? And do and the answer is yes. So we pay and we grumble because there is that sense of communitarian responsibility that the, the sort of Jewish identity and anyone who's not Jewish who happens to be in the state of Israel is sort of included in that. It's folded in as a, as, as a minority. So that's very different. And that may, that mean, that's why we don't have left-wing populism in Israel. So in the US and in Spain and in other countries and in England with, the, with Jeremy Corbyn, you had left-wing populism, not as powerful and not as popular as the right-wing version, but it's still there and, and a rebellion against the Clintonite and the Blairite center-left, more liberal view much more populist. The only bit that is a little like that is Shas, where it's people from the weaker side of Israeli, the weaker elements economically of Israeli society, from a Mizrahi background who felt that the dominant culture in secular Israel uh, until the 1980s looked down on them because they were as, as simpletons as primitive and because they were religious and because they weren't from the west and they spoke with a funny accent and they ate different food and all that sort of stuff so for them they when israel became a you know a high-tech superpower that was great for most is most of israel but the openness meant that factories and development towns moved abroad we now buy our socks from china not from dimona and so they lost out economically and they lost out in terms of dignity that they hadn't had. So a vote for Shas, the Haredi religious party, was a way to do that. Now, that's important to religious Zionism because when Kach, when Kahana's party was banned in the 1980s, so the last election it ran for was in 1984. Right. In 1988, when it couldn't run, most of Kahana's voters did not go to the next most extreme right-wing party. They went to Shas. And if you look at in this election campaign, you look at who Shas is fighting against and who they see as their competitor for votes, it's religious Zionism. If you go, you see their online ads. They're not appealing to ultra-Orthodox Jews. They're appealing to traditional Mizrahi Jews and they have a young Mizrahi voter saying, Ben Gvir seems like a good guy. He seems to stand for the right things. You know, why shouldn't I vote for him? Why should I vote for Shas? So that is the similar element mm -hmm. between the two. But ultimately, it's a different thing in Israel because the leaders of the extreme right in Israel come out of a religious education system that has become more and more separate and more and more antagonistic to Western liberal norms since the 1970s. And it, it's like they're more separated than a Nigel Farage or a, a, a Donald Trump or a Mike Pence or a Marine Le Pen. They go to different schools. They're educated in different ways. They live often in a settlements which are overwhelmingly, if not completely, observant orthodox so the social and sort of theological, ideological base of the leadership is very different. Some of the followers, yes, there is a certain element of similarity, but even there, it's much more to do with globalization and the failure of 
and its failure with the 2008 crush in the rest of the world. And with Israel, we have our own dynamic which precedes that and which gets its ideological power from other places. Before we go, just to wrap up as a final question, the usual predict the future uh, (laughs) scenario that uh, we love to speculate on. If you see a scenario following the election results in which Netanyahu's road to power is possible, but it goes through the religious Zionist party, it goes through Ben Gvir, who is a very clever negotiator, what do you expect to see and what are your greatest fears regarding that scenario in which basically Netanyahu can come back, but his power really depends on this party? If Netanyahu gets 61 with them, then he will include religious Zionism. I mean, the most likely coalition, if he is in a position to form a coalition, the most likely one is with the ultra-Orthodox parties and religious Zionism. In that case... I think my immediate fear is, like I said before, is that they would pass a law that would change the way in which judges are appointed and would pass the so-called French law, which its immediate impact would be that Netanyahu would no longer, his, his court case would end and he would you know, be able to continue to be prime minister and it would undermine anti-corruption in Israel and gravely threaten the rule of law. I think that that is the thing to be most concerned about in the immediate term not the more headline grabbing extremist statements i think that your stress on him being a clever politician is absolutely right because the clearer he presents his vision the less people he can get under the umbrella of religious zionism but it may well turn out in the nightmare scenario that people only realize what they really voted for when it's too late And on that cheerful note, (laughs) Professor Jonathan Reinhold, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me, Alison. It's a pleasure. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Get all of your election night and post-election coverage at haaretz.com. And after the results are in, don't forget to tune into our podcast, Election Overdose, which will break down all of the results for you. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Jonathan Reinhold, to my producer, Nahara Malkin, and to my editor, Maya Benissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.